This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9. My name is Louise and I'm an alcoholic. The purpose of this show is to increase public awareness of Alcoholics Anonymous as an effective means of recovery from the disease of alcoholism. Our show has two parts. First, we'll talk a bit about alcoholism, what it is and what AA can do to help. Then we'll interview a recovering alcoholic who is an active member of AA. I'm now going to ask our guest to read the AA preamble, which is read at the start of every AA meeting. Hi, I'm Kerry. I'm an alcoholic. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination politics, organisation or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Wonderful. Thanks, Kerry. So what is alcoholism? Alcoholism is a disease, not a disgrace. There's no shame in having an illness or a disease. An unusual feature of this disease is that it will do whatever it can to convince you that you do not have it. However, once it has a hold of you, the progression of symptoms is like the classic disease model and the victim is as helpless as a sufferer of cancer. If you are an alcoholic, you're at the beginning of a long road that usually ends in one of three places, prisons, institutions or death. If you think this sounds dramatic, we can assure you that our collective experience has shown this to be true. The challenge is to convince the alcoholic to admit that they need help and become willing to seek it. Denial is a major symptom of alcoholism. The alcoholic is often the last one to recognise it and admit that they have it. Our definition of alcoholism is it is an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. The allergy is the physical aspect of the disease. After having the first drink, the phenomenon of craving develops and we lose control over when we will stop drinking. The old saying is, one is too many and a thousand is never enough. And yet, because of the obsession of the mind, the mental aspect of the disease, the alcoholic is compelled to keep picking up the first drink. And this is what makes us powerless. We often hear from sober alcoholics that many doubted whether life could be fun without alcohol. Fortunately, those same people report that their lives have improved dramatically since they became sober. The 12-step program of recovery, which is discussed at meetings and which is outlined in the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book, is how we get sober and maintain our sobriety one day at a time. This program has a proven track record of helping otherwise hopeless alcoholics to achieve long-term sobriety and recovery It has taught us how to enjoy life sober. Okay, for anyone who's just joined us, you're listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9.
We're just about to interview an AA member who's going to share their experience with alcoholism. So let's meet our guest. Welcome to the show. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Kerry. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Kerry. Welcome. It's good to be here. Wonderful. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, How long have you been sober? I've been sober 28 years. 28 years. Brilliant. And um, a little bit more about yourself outside of AA. Um, Do you, you've got family? Yes, I do. Well, I'm happily single. I'm 60 and I'm 28 years sober. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, I'm very, uh, you know, life is really good. So let's yeah. let's talk a little bit about, you know, what was it like growing up? Talk to us a little bit about your childhood. Well, I grew up in Christchurch and uh, dad was Dutch. Mum mm-hmm. was a Kiwi. Mm-hmm. And we lived uh, near New Brighton. And um, we had a really nice childhood. We had, a, you know, a playing outside in summer and uh, both my parents were sober. Um, there was a bit of stress in the house. My parents actually got separated and divorced in later years, mm. which uh, caused a little bit of stress. Um, but we had an extended family. Um, life was a uh, life was more relaxed than it is now. I think sure. we didn't have all the technology and <laughs> had to walk everywhere. And used to hitchhike around with my girlfriends. And and, and New Brighton was the only uh, shopping uh, only place you could shop on Saturdays. Wow! In its time, it was beautiful. Mm. It was a thriving area. So we had a lot of lot of fun. So, you know, talking about your teens, uh, tell us, when did you start drinking and what did it do for you? Well, um, the family always um, caught up in the weekends for picnics and family parties and I always mm. loved loved the family parties mm. and everyone drank and some and they drank a lot. And a lot of those uncles, they had, you know, the half G's and the little suitcases and, <laughs> um, you know, some of the relatives got, uh, you know, pretty drunk. Um, and I always loved the atmosphere because someone would start playing the piano, we'd all start singing and forget the words and laugh and, you know, um, it was all self-taught on the piano and, you know, beautiful um, atmosphere at the parties mm. and I couldn't wait to grow up and drink, you know, because mm. I thought, um, you know, that would be nice and, um, you know, uh, I did have a, a grandfather who was a chronic alcoholic. Um, but I didn't. Uh, I thought alcoholism was just uh, old men, right? <laughs> you know? Okay, so you knew about you knew about <laughs> so it. So we, you... it was there was a thread in the family, and it did cause, you know, it did cause um, uh, some trauma in some family members, which mm. I know now. I, mm. I didn't at the time, mm. um, but I picked up my first drink at a New Year's Eve party when I was thirteen mm-hmm. at our house. How did it make you feel? And I, I well, um, I've never <laughs> forgotten how that first drink and how it made me feel. I thought, my God, this is it. I need to feel like this all the time mm. uh, because I did have some dis-ease. I had, you know, I, I was irritable and discontent sometimes mm. even when I was a kid, even before I had mm. my first drink, I would just had those kind of moods, you know, and I didn't feel like I, f- I fitted in. I'd look at my parents and wonder if I was adopted mm. because there was something in me that felt like I didn't quite belong and, you know, I just didn't, uh, I just had that feeling like I didn't, you know, like I didn't really fit in and I couldn't explain it. But that mm. uh, first drink, it took everything away. I felt complete. I felt normal. Mm. 
I thought, my God, I should feel like this all the time. And I, you know, I've always drunk the same ever since. You know, it was never one or just a little bit. It was full on. Mm. And I actually um, uh, threw up a couple of times and I'd eaten <laughs> this bag of red cherries. And the next day my mother's on the phone and she's telling my auntie, if somebody threw up last night, there's this. And I said, oh, it was me, mum. And she goes, oh, it was Kerry, you know. <laughs> um, and no one really uh, paid that attention because sure. we didn't understand what alcoholism was. Mm. With, uh, we, we, we believed that it was a willpower thing. Mm. And when mm. my grandfather died when I was eight, I, um, I thought everything was going to be great because – you know, um, he wasn't going to uh, hurt my mother anymore, mm. and all of this kind of thing. And um, I had no idea. I thought no you, idea. I thought it was willpower. That's what we believed. And so, so you talked about you drank the same every time. Mm. As you progressed through your teens into your adulthood, what were some of the were there some were there consequences? Well, I always knew there was something not quite right even before I picked up the drink, mm. but I could never figure out what it was. But the, the, the drinking uh, was a solution. And it was, as soon as I picked up that first drink and felt that way, I couldn't uh, – I thought, my God, I, I should feel like this all the time. And it was very soon after that that I was hanging out with people and we'd, we'd go to the bottle store and I'd be the one to go in and get the um, get the booze. Mm. And, um, you know, we used to drive around in the old cars. There'd be about seven or eight of us in the car and – you know, it was a more innocent time as mm. well. You know, it's not like now the, there wasn't so much traffic and people and mm. fast cars. You know, the cars were a bit slower than I think. <laughs> <laughs> and then we didn't have all these uh, drinking laws like we have now and breath, getting breath tested. Mm. That, that wasn't uh, really there then. Um, but uh, we started drinking in the weekends and I just noticed that I just uh, I always look forward to it. In fact, it was started to be all I thought about. Mm. So for me, it was quite fast. It wasn't, right. you know, I, I, when I look back, I was in trouble from the first drink, but I had no idea. It just set off, it set it off, the allergy. Mm. And and so knowing that, knowing what you, you know, knowing that this isn't probably quite normal, did you ever try to stop? Uh, no, I just thought I was going to grow out of it. Wow. But okay. I didn't I didn't know, but people used to say to me, I don't know what it is about you, Carrie, but I seem to drink more when you're around <laughs> because I seem to like I was enjoying it so much and I seem to gravitate towards people mm. who drank like I drank. I mean, people who, you know, were social drinkers and had one or two drinks, I wasn't very interested in them. They mm. seemed to be a bit more uh, boring. But you know, there was a lot of binge drinking in young ladies and young people in that time. Mm. So I, I didn't I, I knew there was something wrong that my drinking was a bit different, but I didn't stand out and I was expecting just to grow out of it. But and, I didn't. <laughs> and, and so any impact on your relationships with your family? Well, um, it, it, you know, uh, I'd come home very late at night or even early in the hours of the morning. And because my parents were um, separating mm. and they were busy with their own problems, mm. I was able to take advantage of that, mm. you know, because they were just preoccupied with their own problems. So, you know, um, I used that to get away with a lot more mm. than probably I would have. Mm. Um, but I, I just didn't care, you know. Uh, I, you know, I often had Monday-itis. <laughs> and um, I remember coming out of the bedroom once and it was dark and it was in the winter. And, and uh, I said, what time is it? My mother said, you have to go to work now. And I just about freaked out. Mm. And so she was trying to say it was Monday morning at 6 o'clock I had to go to work. And it wasn't. It was Sunday night. <laughs> but, um, you, know, you know, I was sleeping in, like really getting up late in the afternoon, mm. really hungover. And, um, you know, drinking most of the weekend. And then, you know, Monday morning I'd be feeling awful. Mm. And not mm. want to face the world. I, I, I do remember waking up not wanting to see anybody because mm. I couldn't quite remember where I'd been and what I'd done. I could just remember bits and pieces. Mm. But I never talked about it to anybody. I just sort of suffered quietly, got over it, but it didn't stop me. I'd, I'd forget about that by the next week. 
I'd be ready to go again. <laughs> and and so as you, you know, um, got older and, and sort of, uh, you know, your life progressed, you know, what was it that we often talk about in AA and people describe potentially as their rock bottom? Or what was it that brought you to what is now 28 years recovery? Right. So I started at 13 and I went overseas when I was about 18 to mm-hmm. the Netherlands. And, uh, and of course, there you could drink 20, 24-7. Mm. And uh, some of the family over there were very sober. So I quickly got to Amsterdam <laughs> and I found some family members that weren't. <laughs> and friends. And I just uh, just took off from there. And um, and then to counteract the um, uh, the effects of the alcohol, you know, it was easy for me to take some drugs. Mm. They were very cheap and very available. Mm. Um, I never really want – I didn't find going to a doctor getting medications attractive mm-hmm. because my mother had been on medications. Mm. And um, I didn't. I avoided that. Mm. So I was Doctor Kerry, mm-hmm. and um, and you know, at the end of my drinking at thirty-one, I was on pretty much everything. But mm. alcohol was always on the menu. Menu. The the drugs were just to moderate the effects of the alcohol. And I also got married during that time, mm. and I had a stepdaughter that I had to get to school and mm-hmm. and uh, you know tried to tried to be there for her. Um, but at the end of my drinking. Uh, uh, the pain was starting to seep through. I wasn't able to keep control over the uh, over everything. It's you know I started to find it difficult to get to work on time. Mm-hmm. I was always late and had it full of excuses. Mm. Um, but I was getting more and more tired, and it was more and more difficult to keep up keep up the show. And uh, you know, and people started to notice that I wasn't functioning so well mm-hmm. and making comments. But I knew myself, um, you know, that it wasn't getting better. And it got a little bit scary because I had actually been trying to um, you know, stop everything and get really healthy. Mm. Um, but when I did try to stop, I wasn't able to. I wasn't able to last very long. I was so, lucky if I could last, a, you know, I'd think um, next week I'm going to be good. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to get my life together. And I'd last about two hours and I'd have to pick up a drink, have some drugs and carry on again. So the it choice, was just a vicious circle. The choice was removed. Yeah. So how did you find your way to your first AA meeting? Well, I wasn't looking for AA. I didn't really know it existed. Uh, but my last drinking buddy, um, who was from Ireland, she found uh, she was uh, hitting bottom a little bit earlier than me. Mm. And uh, we used to go out drinking together and we'd wake up in the morning and she'd get me to call her boss and tell him that you know <laughs> she's got the flu. And we'd have a handful of these vitamins called Birchis, which is a kind of a vitamin, and we thought they were the cure for hangovers. They weren't really, but <laughs> try these things. Um, and anyway, um, one day her boss said to her, look, why aren't, why aren't you, she was a cleaner, and he said, why aren't you coming to work? And she said, because I'm an alcoholic. That's why. And he took her to a meeting. Wow. And she started to get sober, and I noticed her really changing. I'd say, let's go to Mulligan's and have a drink. And um, and she's going. No, I'm going to an AA meeting. And I thought that's weird. And um, and I didn't. Uh, I was kind of part, partly attracted to it, but I kind of it was confronting as well. Mm. And then she invited me to a birthday party, and it was a very different birthday party than she normally had. There wasn't all the crowd, you know, all the musicians, and there wasn't anything happening in the kitchen. And it was all AA people, and they were sober and they were having fun. And I was the only one who was loaded. Wow. And they'd all heard about her friend Kerry. But they didn't. They didn't preach at me. They was just talking about themselves. But mm-hmm. there was something strangely attractive to them. Mm. So, um, and through her, I went to my first meeting. What and, was uh, that like? Oh, it was weird. 
Um, everyone was sober and people were getting honest and somebody was really angry and um, and I, I was impressed because I'd never heard anyone get so honest. Wow. I thought, wow, how do they, how do they get so honest? I was very repressed. But this person was, you know, really sharing very honestly about their anger and somebody else mm-hmm. cried and I thought, wow, these people are so honest and they all got around me and said, you know, come back. And But I came out of that meeting and I turned to her and I said, stay away from these people, they're crazy. And I went and had coffee with them, and we were all sitting there, and I was telling them how wonderful my life was. Mm. And I had this business, you know, my husband had this business, and, all, and it, it was true, but not true. Mm. Um, it wasn't mm. very successful, mm. because we were, we were both um, alcoholics, <laughs> so, you know, we couldn't keep things going sometimes. Mm. But um, I had this really great life I was telling them about, and... And that's what I was used to doing was this double life of covering mm. up and saying how wonderful things were, but they weren't really. Um, and, uh, you know, things were starting to crash. Sure, sure. So, and I didn't come back to AA for a year after that. Okay. But during that year, it really, really fell down. And, and, what, I, and, and, and so what was yeah, when you got back into that meeting, what was it that, that pulled you back into that meeting? Well, it was just uh, she confronted me and told me it was too painful to be around me, which really shocked me. Wow. But I knew I knew I wasn't able to keep the job going and looking after the stepdaughter, mm. and I wasn't able to keep myself going. It, 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 the pain was starting to seep through. I didn't have the energy. It wasn't working like it used to work. It wasn't taking me out of things. And so, so I guess uh, that- I was just doing it to, uh, because I didn't know what, what else to do, but it wasn't really having um, the effect that it used to have. So that was changing. And I was getting older. I was 31, and I was starting to look around and realise that the party was still going on, but for other people my age, they were getting careers and settling down, and I wasn't. Mm. And um, so let's talk a little bit about um, your journey in recovery. So so 28 years sober now, and, um, you know, what a what does recovery look like to you and what are some of the things you have done and do to ensure your sobriety? Well, um, after a year I went to a, a meeting and uh, I was ready then, well, as ready as you can be. I didn't know what to expect. Mm. But uh, uh, after, that, uh, after that meeting, uh, someone said, go to a meeting every day for 90 days. And the first thing I said was, I'm too busy, I can't. <laughs> I've got to look after my stepdaughter. And they said, well, if you get sober, you'll be really there for your stepdaughter. So um, amazingly, I showed up the next day sober. I was on a little bit of um, little bit of methadone, mm-hmm. but I was for about three months, and then I got off that. Um, but I did show up, and I kept mm. showing up. But I, uh, the longer I stayed sober, the more crazy I got mm. because the sobriety wasn't. At first, it was wonderful, and then it got. Um, then I had to do the work. But I did get a sponsor very early at my second meeting, um, and I called her every day, and I started to uh, call other people mm-hmm. and. Uh, I was regular at showing up to meetings, and I didn't pick up. Wow. And I went through the process, and it wasn't always easy. No. But I had the hope. These people gave me hope because they were they were sober. They were happy. They were going to work. They were studying. They were doing stuff. And they said I could have what they've got if I um, didn't pick up and came to the meetings and worked the steps. And so you, you touched on sponsorship there. And so so having a sponsor is something that's been really critical for yourself. Very important. And I'd say um, having a sponsor, um, very, very important. There's no way um, I would have stayed sober um, or and also made the changes that are necessary, mm. learning how to live sober. I needed someone to – and also meeting protocol, mm. what to say, you know, how to behave in meetings mm-hmm. and and um, questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of things. So uh, it's key, I, I would say. We don't have to do it alone. Well, it's, I couldn't have done it alone. 
Um, and it took a while for the rough edges to get knocked off because mm-hmm. my th- my thinking was quite insane sober mm, mm. because it was used to I was used to living a double life and telling myself stories and I had to learn how to get honest and that um, that was weird getting truthful was weird but it was also very freeing and um, you know when we talk about AA uh, and the, the the program being the steps what's that experience been like for you? Well, it was it was amazing. Um, it took me a while to understand I was powerless and life was unmanageable. Mm. I couldn't see that. I thought I just got to um, abstain from alcohol mm. for a couple of weeks and then I should be able to get it together and everything will come back normally. But that's not what happened. Mm. My brain wasn't working very well. There was a, an effect from all those years of drinking and mm. also the drugs I was on. Um, and I got off those, I was off all of those too. So um, my brain had to be rewired mm. <laughs> to think normally, you know, to get up at a certain time, to eat three times a day, sure. to uh, be able to, you know, follow thoughts through to a logical conclusion. I mean, my head was wild. It used to spin around with all kinds of things. But mm. I, I would say the uh, vital thing I did was the third step. So let's touch on that. You know, we, we describe AA as a spiritual program, not a religious program. Talk to us about what that means for you. Well, I would say with the with the third step, um, I was told I could have any higher power I wanted, mm-hmm. and uh, it's not it's, like you said, it's not religious; it's a spiritual program. So it was really connecting with a higher power and getting myself out of the way. Mm. And it was quite a difficult thing for me because I I like to run the show, <laughs> and I was very self sufficient. I like to do things on my own. I don't like to ask for help. Mm. So I I really had at a certain point I had to learn to ask for help. There was no choice. And it was very freeing. It was a surrender. Mm. Letting other people in, telling them the truth about how I was really feeling. These are all things I'd never done. No. And, uh, and, uh, and it helped keep them sober too when they were being of service to me. And doing things for free. There was no agenda. There was nothing. Uh, people were helping me without uh, wanting money or anything yep. or to move into my house. Or It was freely given with no strings attached. Mm. And mm. that was amazing. Mm. And I remember saying to somebody, you know, you people are being so good. How can I pay you back? Well, <laughs> you, well you, you, you'll do that for other people. You'll carry the message. You, 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 you'll, um, you'll help newcomers. You, you'll be there for them. You, you know, you, you'll tell them how you got sober. And we do it together. And uh, so it was a huge shift from mm. this isolated um, self-sufficiency, mm-hmm. uh, me running the world and the show. And it was a whole shift. So the third step was very important because I made a decision. Mm. And I hadn't understood it was a decision. But once I made that decision to hand my will and my life over to a higher power, everything changed. Then I was able to do all the rest of the steps. And, um, you know, as a result, what's your life like today? I wake up very peacefully. Mm. You know, I feel very good inside. Uh, I feel peaceful. Mm. Um, And that's what I really wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, to feel comfortable in my own skin. Mm-hmm. I know who I am. I know mm-hmm. what I like. I know what I want to do. I know what I want to wear. <laughs> I'm very easy around other people. I um, have a lot of guests that stay in my house. Mm-hmm. And it's um, uh, it's very easy. Mm. They don't, uh, I, I, you know, I can talk with them and I'm not hyper vigilant about what they're doing and when they're coming <laughs> in and what noise they're making. It's very comfortable. Yeah. I've got real friends today. I've got um relationships, um, mm. and I've picked up some old relationships. Mm. Like I had a, 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 a an old friend who used to be a, my neighbour when we were kids, and she came around for lunch the other day. So, so all of those things that I lost, mm. they start to come back. And I was also able to be there when my parents died of cancer. Mm. And that was really, really stressful. And, you know, there wasn't uh, – not everything was healed in the family. There was still some unfinished business. 
Um, it wasn't able to be dealt with for many reasons. Doesn't matter. But I was be able. To, I was able to be there, present. Yep. I was able to be emotionally supportive to them, whatever mm-hmm. else was going on, and I was able to be sober. And I could never have imagined being able to be sober for something like that. I always imagined at my parents' funeral would be you know a three year binge at least. <laughs> and, and you know the other things that we talk about life on life's terms, and so some of the things you do to help during times to to help you cope. Well, uh, one of the most important things that I was taught in the first week, I was taught to go and say hello to the newcomers. Right. And it doesn't say anywhere in the big book, call your sponsor. It says help others. Mm. And I've always followed that. That's what I was taught and that's what I've always done. I sponsored three people in my first year with wow. the help from my sponsor, another yep. woman, mm-hmm. because uh, you, you don't study to be a sponsor. You learn <laughs> to do, do it on the fly. With the help of others. And, yeah. you know, they told me if you don't know something, tell them you don't know and you'll come back to them. So I'd have to ring up other women and find out what I have to say to them. And it also forced me to uh, do do what I was telling them to do. Mm. But, I mean, that that's really been the, the biggest thing, is, and especially in the later years. Working because people others. get the jobs, they get the money, they get the family back. Everything's fine. And 20 years sober, they feel insane because I've stopped helping newcomers. So that's been a thread of my life continuously because I was not planning to stick around for 28 years. No. <laughs> I was planning to stick around for two weeks. And so, Kerry, what would you recommend for someone who thinks they might have a problem? What could they ask themselves? Um, well, I think it becomes very obvious. Uh, you know, Life becomes painful. Um, when I tried to stop drinking, I found I couldn't. That mm. was very scary. Mm. So uh, I, I would recommend go to an AA meeting. Just call the um, uh, service centre. Mm-hmm. You can find it online. AA mm-hmm. um, is, is online. You can find a number there and talk to somebody. Somebody can either come to the house and mm. uh, normally they come with two people, but come there and, and talk to you about alcoholism and explain about uh, what alcoholism is and what they did and how they got sober mm-hmm. and maybe take you to a meeting mm. or somebody will take you to a meeting or maybe if you've got a, a family member that you need for support, you can take them uh, with you, husband or family member, to the meeting for the first meeting or the mm. first couple. And just have a listen and, uh, and and maybe go to six meetings and then make up your mind. Make up your and mind. And if you're still drinking, that's, that's fine. Just show up. It's one hour mm. and just see what you think. So I, I would say go to, go to the meeting because that's actually what I did. Mm. I had a friend who attracted me by getting sober and staying sober. And I heard about the meetings and I heard a little bit about what she was doing from her. She never preached to me or told me what I had to do. And then um, she asked me if I'd like to go to a meeting and then I was willing to go and have a look at a meeting. And have a lesson. Yep. And I was attracted to the honesty and that's what kept me coming back was people being so honest and relating to what they were saying. Well, Kerry, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. My pleasure. It's an honour. Wonderful to have you here. For our listeners, if you've related to anything you've heard or would like some more information about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can look us up on the web at www.aa.org.nz or call us on 0800 AA Works. There are over 60 meetings a week in Canterbury, so it's likely there's one near you. Join us next week to hear from more AA members sharing their experiences. The show airs every Monday at 5.30pm and repeats on Wednesday at 12.30pm. You can also find podcasts of our past shows on Plains FM website or you can download on iTunes and Spotify. That brings us to the end of the show. Thank you for listening and remember, if you want to drink, that's your business. But if you want to stop, we can help. 
You don't have to do it alone. We will now close the show with the serenity prayer as we do in every AA meeting. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. You've been listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show on Plains FM 96.9.